presentation. Sales depended on it. This guy's job depended on it. He wanted it to be perfect. So he spent as much time as he could preparing his PowerPoint presentation. He had all the graphics in order and in line. He had researched to find just the right pictures to show and make sure everything was flowing in sequence so it would be impressive and informative and persuasive. He went an hour ahead of time to the room where he was going to make the presentation and made sure everything was set up, made sure it worked. And then the room began to fill with clients and the expectation in his own heart began to uh, intensify and he could, he could feel the electricity in the air. Now was the moment. And he began his presentation and nothing worked. He went over everything to figure out what had gone wrong until finally they found that underneath the table someone had pulled out the power cord to the monitor and all his work seemed to be in vain. You ever experienced something like that? You just weren't plugged in. Everything was right. You had all the resources you need and all the preparation was done, except you had no power. That reminds me of the story in Mark's Gospel, chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to turn to this portion of Scripture as we continue our study on the life of Jesus Christ, entitled simply Jesus. Our focus is on the life of the Son of God, his beauty, and his glory. It's been a couple weeks since I have preached on Mark. Last week we focused on the Lord's Supper. And a couple weeks ago we looked at the transfiguration. That's the way Mark's gospel starts in chapter 9. They're taken up to this high mountain, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus is transfigured before them so that his divinity shows through his humanity and the brightness is unbelievable. And Moses and Elijah are there talking with Christ about his death, about the resurrection. And Peter says, it's good for us to be here. Let's build three booths, one for each one of you. And a cloud comes, it's the Father and the Heavenly Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased to hear him. And when the cloud is gone, they see Jesus only. What an amazing situation that must have been. A true mountaintop experience. But we read in chapter 9 that they began to come down from the mountain, verse 9, and as they did, there was a fascinating discussion the discussion was about the resurrection that Jesus had been telling them about and about the suffering of the Messiah. And they even had questions about Elijah. Isn't he supposed to come before the end of all things? So a fascinating discussion after this amazing transfiguration. And then the Bible tells us they get down to the bottom of the hill and it's pandemonium. There's a, a real Donnybrook going on, a brouhaha, which is a favorite word of mine to talk about a fight. There was conflict going on between the nine disciples that were left at the bottom of the hill and the teachers of the law, the scribes, those who had given their life to knowing the law and proclaiming the law and unfortunately dominating the people by that same law. And so we read in verse 14 
of chapter 9. When they came to the other disciples, that is at the bottom of the hill, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. Isn't life better on the top of the mountain? (laughs) Wouldn't you rather just stay up there away from the conflict below? But we've been called to live in the valley. That's where ministry takes place. And so this argument between the disciples and the teachers of the law, what was it about? It appears to be rather intense. And we're going to learn that the argument probably was centered around a boy that the disciples could not heal. And the teachers of the law love this. Ha-ha, you, you bunch of phonies. We've been telling everyone that this ministry of Jesus is not the real deal. And they called the disciples phonies, I'm sure, and by implication, your master is all wet as well. Verse 15, as soon as all the people, the crowd, saw Jesus coming down from the mountain, they were overwhelmed with wonder and awe, not because he was still glowing, but because they weren't expecting him. He was up on the mountain kind of doing his own thing, and they were involved in this heated debate, and he shows up, and his arrival surprises them. And Jesus says to them, what are you arguing about? Now, everyone wanted to be close to Jesus. They were in awe of him because of the mighty miracles and the wonderful teachings that he was sharing. Everyone wants a piece of a celebrity. You want to be close to them. You want to know them. You want to talk to them. You want to interact with them. And so they were glad that Jesus had come down. And Jesus said, what's the discussion about? And and if you look at the text closely, what are you guys arguing about? No one responds. In fact, what are you arguing with them about? He says to his disciples. The question is really pointed to the nine. And they don't say anything as far as the scripture tells us. You know why? (laughs) They had just failed. And they were embarrassed. You say failed at what? Well, there is one person who did respond, and it wasn't the one to whom the question was addressed, but verse 17 says, a man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son, my son who is possessed by a spirit. Later on, He's called an evil or unclean spirit. And we've seen this often, have we not, in the gospel according to Mark up to this point? Demon possession, demon influence, demon control. I brought to you my son. Luke's account of the story says this was his only son, which only intensifies the pain. This spirit has robbed him of speech, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and gnashes his teeth, and he becomes rigid. And if you were to jump down to verse 22, you'll notice that these convulsions were dangerous and had suicidal tendencies, for the spirit in him tried to throw him into the fire. Or throw him into the lake and drowned him. And maybe he had bruises and burns all over his body. Can you imagine the sad story from this dad? Imagine how the dad felt all his life trying to care for a child like this. 
You want to hurt a parent? Touch their child, right? And here was a son that he could not care for and could not protect, and the demons were trying to kill him. And he came to Jesus for help. By the way, J.C. Ryle has a very interesting observation. He said in this story, the devil loses no time inflicting the young, so we should lose no time in instructing them about the good things of Christ. Haven't you heard it said, let the child decide for himself. Don't try to influence them. Why not? The devil is. And so here's this young boy coming. Imagine how that father felt But Jesus felt even worse, and Jesus was even more concerned. It seems like the father is saying this, I brought him to you, but you were gone. (laughs) You weren't around. You're up on the mountain doing I don't know what. But I've got a problem, and I couldn't find you. So your disciples stepped in, and I can just imagine the scenario. Guy comes with his demon-possessed son, Son has all these problems. I want the Savior to touch him. The disciples, the nine, say, well, he's not here, but don't worry about that. We see, we've seen how it's done. We'll step in. We'll take care of this. We've done it before. No problem. We just put our hands on him and say, you know, a few words, and the Spirit's gone. They've tried, they tried the exorcism. They actually tried to help, but they failed. Look at the last part of verse 18. I brought him to your disciples, and your disciples had no power to help. The Greek word is the word for authority. They could not command the evil spirit. They could not drive him out. And the disciples were standing there, I'm sure, with heads bowed in great shame. Sad part about it is the disciples had been equipped to do this very thing. If you go back to Mark chapter 6, you might remember these words. Jesus called the 12 to him, the nine that were at the bottom of the hill, the three that were with Jesus on the top, the 12. He had called the 12 to him. To him. He began to send them out two by two, And Mark 6, 7 says, he gave them authority. The very same Greek word that is used in our text. He gave them authority over impure, unclean, evil spirits. And in Mark 6, 13, a few verses later, they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil. And the sick people were healed. They had been equipped to do it. They had done it before. And they tried and failed. What was the deal? What was the problem? They had been given power by God, but they were no longer connected by God. The power cord had been unplugged. I like what William Barclay says about spiritual gifts, which all believers have. There's a deep lesson in this story, he says in Mark chapter 9, for us. God has given us some gift, but unless we maintain close contact with him, that gift will wither and die. 
God maybe has given you a gift of music or the gift to speak or whatever it might be. But when you speak, if you're not connected with him, they're merely words. If you sing, but you're not connected with him, you're merely a professional performing. He goes on to say, when we're not connected with God, but we try to use our spiritual gifts, we lose two things. Number one, vitality. Our gift loses its power. The thing that makes it great, the thing that makes it effective. And secondly, we lose humility. He says, what should be used for the glory of God, we begin to use for the glory of ourselves. And when we do so, the virtue is gone. We try to gain the glory for ourselves. This is my gift. No, it's not. What do you have that you've not received, Paul says in Colossians? And if you've received it, why do you boast as if you didn't? Barclay ends this wonderful section where he says, whatever gifts God has given us, we lose them if we use them merely for ourselves. The disciples said, we've done this before. Piece of cake. Really? Hey, I've lived the Christian life. I don't need to keep reading my Bible. I don't need to keep going to church. I don't need to fellowship with believers. I don't need to keep praying. I know how it's done. Piece of cake. And then you fall flat on your face. What's the problem? Well, Jesus analyzes it very well. We'll call it the absence of faith. The absence of faith. Verse 19. Jesus says, O unbelieving generation, how long will I stay with you? How long will I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Unbelieving generation. Jesus puts his disciples in with a whole lot of people in that entire society who were faithless. Faithless. An unbelieving generation is a generation that has confidence in their own ability but no trust and dependence upon God. We're living in a faithless generation. How then can we help them if the church is faithless? When people come to the church and ask for help, and we say, piece of cake, we've done it before, and we're powerless to help. We're incompetent. We are part of the faithless generation around us. Did you know that the father was extremely frustrated, I'm sure, when the disciples couldn't do anything? His heart was broken, but so was Jesus frustrated. Look at verse 19. How long am I going to put up with you bozos, or you guys? How long am I going to stay with you and experience this type of ignorance? Again, I don't know how Jesus said it. I can't say these words without looking angry and feeling angry. He said it brokenhearted. He said it frustrated. He was exasperated. <laughs> Guys, haven't you a clue? Don't you get it? This is the lament of God in the 21st century. I've equipped my church 
to live the Christian life. I've equipped my church to minister in a dark world for me, and they're powerless, and they haven't got a clue. Mark vividly pictures the pressures and frustrations that Jesus felt all the time in living with the twelve. And that's what happens when you try to train kids. It's frustrating. It's challenging. He doesn't soft-pedal his response to them either. It's a rebuke. He doesn't somehow justify the inadequacy by saying, ah, that's okay, you're just human. No, they had been prepared and given great power, and they weren't using what they had. It's no wonder the Lord was grieved with them. And it's no wonder the Lord is grieved with us when we don't use all the resources we have for his glory. The church of Jesus Christ is well-equipped and well-resourced. That's not the problem. We're not plugged into the power source. That's often the problem. Think of this. The disciples were embarrassed by their failure. The dad was disappointed by their incompetence. Teachers of the law were energized and taunted the disciples. They knew this thing was phony. They knew Jesus wasn't real. And here's proof of it. By the way, when you and I don't walk by faith, we give the enemies of God an occasion to blaspheme. And now Jesus has to rebuke them. Life without faith, my friends, is really disappointing. It's frustrating. It's embarrassing. So now Jesus wants to show or highlight the importance of faith. So we go from the absence of faith Now to Jesus highlighting the importance of faith. Verse 20. So they brought the boy to him, and even as the boy was being brought to Jesus, he fell into a convulsion. By the way, this has all the clinical signs of epilepsy, but it's worse than that because it's demonically controlled. He went into a violent convulsion, He was thrown to the ground. He was rolling around. He was foaming at the mouth. And Jesus said, how long has this been going on? By the way, I'm convinced that whenever Jesus asks a question, he's never trying to find an answer because he knows all the answers, right? I mean, in John chapter 6, when there was a whole crowd of people sitting on the hill, and he said to his disciples, how are we going to feed all these people? The Bible actually says he knew what he was going to do, but he said this to test them. So any question of Christ is a question designed to be a test. How long has he been like this? In other words, let the Father express the real pathos of his heart. And let the disciples feel how bad things have been. And let the disciples know that their unconnectedness with the power of Jesus Christ has only extended this man's pain. You and I are living in a hurting world. Do you see it? Do you see the people around you who are broken and bruised and dying and in agony? 
And the longer we live separated from Jesus Christ is the longer they stay bound and dominated by their pain and sin. How long has he been like this? Since he was a child. Wow, has that dad had a rough life? Do you weep with those who weep? I don't think we do that enough. Jesus did. The man of compassion, deeply moved. And so the father explains to him, this has happened to him often, verse 22, he has suicidal tendencies because of the spirit. And then the father says this, the last part of verse 22, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can help us, help us. Now, I have to acknowledge to you that as a theologian who examines that kind of faith response, I would say that that is deficient. (laughs) Right? I mean, that's not a very faithful statement. If you can. (laughs) And in fact, Jesus calls him on it. Verse 23, what do you mean, if you can? He'd been listening to the disciples too long. And that's what happens when we begin to put our eyes on men and not have our eyes on Christ. We begin to doubt the ability of God. And faith is the belief that God can do anything he wants to do. And what he's promised to do, he will do. That's faith. What do you mean, verse 23, if you can? And Jesus lays down this wonderful principle that's often abused. Everything is possible for him who believes. And some guy who loves to promote himself and have seminars about the power of self-help uses this phrase, just believe, he says to the people who have come and paid $99 to be part of this seminar and purchased more with books and tapes out in the foyer. Just believe. Whatever you believe, you can receive. Whatever you want, you can do. You can be a millionaire, he said. Is that what Jesus meant? No. Everything is possible. God can do whatever he wants to do. Are there limitations on that word everything? Absolutely. God can't sin. But everything he wants to do, he can do. Everything is possible for the one who believes. And then one of the most classic statements on faith in all the scripture, and it ought to be something that you pray almost every day. The boy's father said in verse 24, I believe, help my unbelief. Ever been there? (laughs) This is me every day. I believe. Help my tendency to not embrace you. Help my unbelief. Create in me a heart of trust. It's interesting, the response of Jesus, when the man said, if you can, and Jesus said, if you can, everything is possible. I like the way William Lane paraphrases the words of Jesus. He says, I tell you, everything depends on your ability to believe not on my ability to act. He puts the ball in our court. The question is not, does God have power? 
question is, do I have faith? And am I willing in my faith to trust God to do whatever he chooses to do? Because he doesn't always choose to heal. I wonder how often Jesus calls us out throughout the week when we say, Lord, if you can, and he says to us, what do you mean, if I can? A poor theology about the person of God causes us to live life far below the line of abundance and joy and peace and satisfaction. By the way, when the devil threw this boy into seizures and convulsions, foaming in the mouth, becoming rigid, he was unable to speak and also unable to hear. That's just indicative of the fact that this is exactly what Satan wants for every person. Satan, there's a real war going on, and his desire is to sift you like wheat. His desire is to destroy you like a prowling lion and have you for dinner. He wants to destroy you, and he wants to eliminate in you or deface in you the imago Dei, the image of God. You've been made in the image of God, and that's the way God wants you to live because that's the life of most abundance. Jesus wants to destroy that in you, and this story is indicative of that. Satan wants to destroy this boy's life. Jesus wants to restore his life, and that's exactly what he does. Bring the boy to me, Jesus says. All things are possible if you believe. And while we must restrict that word, all things or everything, to what the Scripture tells us, we often restrict it way too far because God is greater than all we can ask or think. We must be dominated by the sense of the possible. Because you and I are connected to the God who can do all things. It's possible the Father had given up by this point. And it's possible you've given up with that besetting sin, with that broken relationship. You've given up. There's no hope. With that wayward child. All things are possible to him who believes in the God who does the impossible. Verse 25 says, when Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene, Jesus had gone off to the side, as he often did, not to embarrass these individuals who had these uh, horrible physical uh, situations. So Jesus rebukes the evil spirit, verse 25. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit, the spirit, when the spirit saw Jesus, that's when he threw the boy into convulsions. When the spirit heard the command of Christ, who has power over all the evil spirits, the spirit shrieked, convulsed him even more, violently came out of him, and the boy didn't lay rigid. He laid as though he were dead. And that seemed to be the assessment of many. When the people came running up and saw him, he's dead. Jesus killed him. 
And then verse 27 says Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet. Did you notice Jesus does two things? He uses words and he uses touch. He uses words to command and set free. And he uses a touch to raise up. By the way, the word that is used in verse 27 to lift him up to his feet is the same word that is used for resurrection. And it's as though Mark is saying, there's going to come a raising up from the dead Something like you've never seen before. I don't know, maybe the boy actually did die, but Jesus brought him back to life. In fact, Luke says when Jesus performed this miracle, the crowd that finally had run up to the scene marveled at the majesty of God. And that's what happens when you and I have faith in God and exercise that faith, the world will marvel. Not at our great genius, but at the majesty of the God we serve. The world has a lot of arguments and a lot of criticism and a lot of opposition, and our lack of faith energizes them. But when we walk by faith, we silence them, and God gets glory. Because the world is convinced that nothing great could ever happen through a group of people like us (laughs) compared to what has actually happened by the grace and the power of God. That's what faith produces. They marveled at the majesty of God. But that's not the end of the story. The third thing I want you to notice in this story is the evidence of faith. So we have the absence of faith and then the importance of faith if you believe all things are possible. And then thirdly, we have the evidence of faith. The disciples indoors asked him privately, why couldn't we drive out that evil spirit? We've done it before, but we couldn't do it this time. And Jesus said, the problem is your prayer life. Only by prayer, and some texts have the word fasting, which fasting is not a way to twist the arm of God. Fasting is just an expression of how serious you are. Only by prayer and fasting, only by connecting And with God and trusting in him, power comes through prayer. And prayer is energized by faith. And what Jesus is saying is simply this. The evidence of faith is your prayer life. So if I were to say to you, how is your faith? You say, oh, it's pretty good. How's your prayer life? Oh, it's pretty bad. There's a disconnect. Because only by prayer do we demonstrate that we really believe in God. And we really believe in his power. The church is impotent. Not because God is. Not because he's not equipped us or prepared us to do the job. It's because we're not plugged into the power. We're not praying. So the need for faith That's vital. We can never experience the power of God without it. And the nature of faith is active. We must believe. And when we do, we will pray. Remember when Paul was saved? This is Acts chapter 9, and 
Ananias, one of the disciples, was told, I want you to go and find Saul of Tarsus. He's on the street called Straight. He's in a certain house, and I want you to go, and I want you to pray for him, and I want you to baptize him. And Ananias, his first response is, you know, I'd rather not. Because I've heard about this guy, and he's killing believers, and our uh, intelligence tells us he's on his way to this city to kill every person who names the name of Christ. Jesus says, I know, I know, but I've taken care of that. I want you to go, and here's the proof that he's changed. Behold, he prays. <laughs> That's the evidence that there's faith. Behold, he prays. And Ananias goes, and there's Paul's praying, and the rest is history. If you have faith, you will pray, and if you're not praying, O oh ye of little faith. No wonder we're impotent and powerless and inept in all that we try to do for the name of Christ so often. You see, the lesson that, that Jesus is trying to teach is the one that he gave in John 15, where he said, I'm the vine and you're the branches. You abide in me, my words abide in you. Great power. But without me, you can do, what's the rest of it? What was it? <laughs> we kind of think, you know, we can do most everything. It's just the hard stuff we need Jesus for. I'm sure some of the disciples said, you know, we've cast out demons before, and it's no big deal, but this is a really hard case. I, I guess Jesus has to step in for this one. No, no. Without Christ, you can't do nothing. And woe to the life, woe to the church who continues activity in the name of Christianity without trusting in Christ for power and guidance. Hey, I'm not rebuking you today. Jesus is. Sometimes people will, after a sermon, say, Pastor, boy, you really stepped on my toes today. And my response is often like this. Well, Jesus stepped on my toes this week and I just wanted to pay you, pay you with the same pain that I received. I want you to experience the same rebuke. Are you rebuked? I am. What's our lack of power? Only by prayer. There are three dis significant discussions here. Disciples with the teachers, that was the discussion of contention. Jesus with the Father, that was a discussion of compassion. And the last one, Jesus with the disciples, that was a discussion of correction. And I wonder if they got it. There was a great picture by the Italian artist Raphael. And it is a picture of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. Uh, this was the last painting he did until he died in the year 1520. And some believe his greatest masterpiece. And if you look at that picture closely, there are three levels to it. In the top level, you have Jesus ascending, although the scripture doesn't say he did, but you've got Moses and Elijah there. That's kind of the one level. The second level are the disciples, the three disciples on the ground who were afraid when they saw the transfigured Jesus. 
But the third level, the lower level, is what's happening, the story we just read about in Mark 9, what's happening at the bottom of the hill. And as you look at that, you can see the boy on the, on the far right there with his mouth open in a grotesque way and the father concerned and the disciples are pointing and some are pointing at the boy and some are pointing up at Jesus. Did you notice that? Because some people look at the problem and some people look at the Savior. I wonder which direction dominates your focus and your thinking and your vision. Only by faith. Only by faith. Let's pray. Lord, help us to plug in this morning by faith through prayer to the unlimited power of the God who can do anything he wants to do. Forgive us for our sin of not praying, of trusting in our own strength, and of often being such pitiful help to those who are in pain and hurting around us. Lord, Lord, may we recommit ourselves to prayer so that we might experience your power in our church, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, at work, in our city, in our state, in our nation, in our world. O God, that hear us prayer, unto you shall all flesh come.